it's Loom Group's Andrea Lay, Backview's Melissa Burdick, the wizard of Woodland Hills Shree, and I'm PVSB from Flywheel, a division of Omnicom, and I'm coming to you today from the Catskills. Be playing Heckinger's Tuesdays and Thursdays. Before we get to the CPG Guys episode you've downloaded, it's the week of May 6th, and it's time for the Fresh Four, for curated news stories from the past week. We find them dependably intriguing. We hope you do too. We're brought to you through our partnership with Retail Wit, your one-stop shop for retail industry intelligence news, retailwit.com. It's retail right now. Over to you, Shree. In case you're wondering what this background is, I'm at, I'm at my father-in-law's house all the way in Chennai, India for the next couple of weeks. So what's the message of the week? Kroger Precision Marketing strikes a partnership with none other than Yahoo DSP. So Yahoo DSP advertisers now have access to KPM's audiences for both reach and measurement. Partnership marks KPM's second DSP partnership since last fall and ushers in a new focus on commerce media for Yahoo advertising in particular. Collaborations like this one will define the next phase of growth in retail media as retailers recognize the limitations of monetization on their own digital properties and seek incremental growth by expanding offsite. This is said by Sara Marzano, principal analyst at eMarketer. For advertisers, the delayed but still impending deprecation of third-party cookies, which is now on its way, continues to underpin every decision regarding digital advertising dollars. So solutions that safeguard their investments against that hold increasing appeal. Over to you, Andrea. Hello, Fresh 4 listeners. Walmart adds a new grocery line to its private brand's portfolio. Walmart has announced a new private label grocery brand called Better Goods. The line includes 300 items spanning categories such as frozen, dairy, snacks, beverages, pasta, soups, coffee, and chocolate. With most items priced under $5, Better Goods focuses on three key components, culinary experiences, plant-based, and made without. The retailer said Better Goods marks not only its largest private food brand launch in two decades, but also its fastest grocery brand brought to market. Over to you, Melissa. Thanks, Andrea. Uh, so, Savemark companies roll out in-store retail media networks. It's not enough that we have online. Now we're moving to in-store retail media networks. The Savemark companies plans to roll out in-store connect, an in-store retail media network powered by Quad Graphics Inc. To start, 16 of the grocery company stores will have digital screens, kiosks, end caps, shelf screens, and vertical banners throughout, allowing CPG partners to showcase promotions, product information, and recommendations to shoppers. The program will eventually roll out to all the Savemark companies, approximately 200 stores. This is Savemark's latest retail media effort, coming almost a year after a launch of its own retail media network. Over to you, Peter. Thanks, Melissa. Rite Aid expands Uber Eats' partnership for alcohol delivery in eight states. Nearly 1,000 Rite Aid stores will now offer alcohol delivery via retailers' expanded partnership with Uber Eats. Customers of legal drinking aid can get delivery from select stores in California, Idaho, Michigan, New York, Ohio, Oregon, Virginia, and Washington. Quote, our collaboration and trusted partnership with Uber Eats underscores our commitment to meet the evolving needs of our customers and providing a seamless digital shopping experience complements their busy lives, unquote, said Jeannie Walden, Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer at Rite Aid, the U.S.'s third largest pharmacy retailer. That's it for the Fresh Four. Now on to the CPG Guys episode that you've downloaded. Welcome to another episode of the CPG Guys podcast. Our co-hosts, Sri Rajagopalan and Peter V.S. Bond, 
explore how brands and retailers engage with consumers online, in-store, and everywhere in between. And now, here are Shri and Peter. All right, folks, and welcome to this episode of the CPG Guys podcast. I'm Shri, of course, one of your aforementioned CPG Guys hosts. My co-host week over week is Mr. PVSB, the VP of Partner Strategy and Dev at Fetch Rewards, a mobile loyalty platform. Join me in welcoming the other CPG guy. I'm going to start calling him dude. The other CPG guy dude. The man with the velvet voice and the radio dash dash dash. Mr. Bond, who now has cufflinks that say 007. How y'all doing today, Peter? I, you like those cufflinks. Those are nice, uh-huh. aren't they, Shrey? Mm-hmm. I, I know. They're, they're styling and profiling. I got to start wearing that dinner jacket more often. It's, it's way too stylish to just bring out once a year. But I'm doing well, man. I, you know, this is a great episode because we're going to reflect on on the year that's just passed and look to what's coming up. But uh, just the last couple of days reflecting on everything that you and I have done uh, on this journey together, who, who we've brought along with us, how we've helped educate, how we've helped inform and done so in a kind of uh, a giving and spirited way. I hope at least that's how we've done it. Uh, I, I couldn't imagine possibly going on this journey without you, Shri. So thank you. Likewise, Peter. And I can't think of a better guest than the one we have today who can actually come here and reflect on. I, I was going to say, do I get do I get to chip in on this love fest or do I just have to sit here and... Uh... 20, you get to chip in. Go for it, man. Go for it. We're going to break norms here. Just, 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 just sit here and watch this bromance unfold. This is great. So uh... now let's give it. We need virtual air hugs. It's that time of the year. We got literally three days or four days left to close the year here. So come on, virtual hugs, guys. Let's. There we go. We're bringing it. In. Uh, there we there go. We go. Uh... Thank you, Peter, and thank you to our special guest. And before we get to him, let me remind our audience that all of our content can be found easily by going to a browser, typing cpgguys.com. Y'all already know we're 150 plus episodes deep. If you aren't already following us on LinkedIn, just enter CPG guys on LinkedIn.com in the search box. And when you get to our page, simply click the blue plus button, which is follow. That way you'll get to see all the content we're producing and you can participate in the dialogue of the transformation of the CPG industry and retail to deliver quality products and value for the consumer. Did you know that we are also in partnership with new, the network of executive women, and in the middle of every podcast episode is hidden an Easter egg with a message from New. Download, tune in, and listen. Check out newonline.org slash cpgguys with a key message on joining the network. Peter and I, of course, grateful, honored that when twenty as 2021 is wrapping up over here and this is our official last episode for the year, our podcast attracts so many industry luminaries and leaders from notable companies. Today, we're especially pleased to have one such guest who actually... Today, you couldn't find any of those, so. <laughs> Actually, he did six episodes and was our first guest and didn't say no to me on the CPG guy, so it's only right that he comes back here. He is the SVP of commerce for the Omnipom Commerce Group, a friend to the show, as I've already mentioned, the first guest of the CPG guys. He helped us close out 2020 and predicted 2021. And now, on a special year end episode, rounding out 2021. And 2022 early predictions. The man himself joined Peter and me in welcoming to the podcast, Mr. Brian Gildenberg. Greetings, sir. How are you today? 
I'm doing great. Did I get anything right in those 2021 predictions? I got to admit, I didn't go back and revisit them. Uh, it was uh, this turned this turned out to be a complicated year to predict. So, uh, uh. do you really want? Okay, do you really want us to tell you, Brian? Or let's just say you were you were you were batting better than most major league ball players. Well, I think. Well, we'll get into this, but I think most of what I said is like the only rational response to what's going to happen in 2021 is I have no idea, um, and then trying to build a. But we'll talk about that in a minute. So, because you said the same thing for 2022. <laughs> the one thing I think all three of us agreed on at the end of 2020 was digital is going to have a new meaning in the industry. And boy, does it have a meaning or what. That's the kind of stuff we're going to get into. But before we get to all that, Brian, please first tell us about our audience, where they can learn more about Omnicom Commerce and if what a brief overview of what your team does at Omnicom Commerce. Oh sure, yeah. Well, we're uh, well. Thanks, uh, thanks, guys, and uh, and uh, it really is a pleasure to be uh, to be back with you again, as uh, as always. And uh, and I really do. I've, it's, I'm uh, I must congratulate you on uh, from uh, the humblest of possible beginnings, which is no listeners and me for too many episodes, to what you've built uh, to what you've built this platform into. Congratulations, you guys have done an amazing job. Um, so yeah, so I'm Brian Gilbert. Uh, I work for the Omnicom Commerce Group, which is a division of Omnicom. Omnicom is a very large company, uh, in the marketing services world, uh, that has a pretty classic, um, big agency holding company model. Um, we, um, are, we're primarily known probably for the, the three big creative agencies that are the core of Omnicom, BBDO, TBWA, and DDB. Uh, and then our media business, Omnicom Media Group, is, uh, OMD, PhD, and Hearts and Sciences. I work for the part that um, back in the day uh, when uh, things were called shopper marketing agencies, I worked for the agencies that would have been known as shopper marketing agencies. Uh, nobody knows who the Omnicom Commerce Group is. We are better known by the brands we trade under, which are uh, the Integer Group, TPN, Tracy Locke, and uh, Haygarth, um, and Haygarth mostly in the UK. Um, we rebranded from the Omnicom Retail Group, which is what we were, uh, to the Omnicom Commerce Group. Um, late last year, actually. And I always describe my job here as trying to make that rebranding real, helping agencies that have incredible roots in the brick and mortar commerce world and in the beginnings of e-commerce transition into multifaceted commerce agencies um, that can plug into this sort of integrated marketing and demand creation and conversion world that we're all trying to navigate today. So, uh, and uh, yeah, but I mean, in our, our, what we do at, uh, Omnicom Commerce Groups is uh, basically we help we help people sell stuff. So um, and uh, we help uh, we help some of the biggest brands and some of the biggest brands in the world sell stuff at retail more effectively. So um, so that's us. That's me. And uh, you can follow Omnicom Commerce Group on LinkedIn. You can follow me on LinkedIn uh, or you can uh, always go to OmnicomCommerceGroup.com if you are a person that likes very long URLs. So thank you for that. And of course, for our audience, all of this information Brian just alluded to will be on the digital liner notes of this podcast. So I'm going to jump right into the questions and we're going to first decompose 2021. You already said it was a wild ride, but it was a wilder ride for digital and e-commerce given all the headwinds that showed up. If I asked you to pick just one iconic epic moment in 2021, would you pick 11-11 singles day or is it something else? What in your mind, Brian, was it? I wouldn't actually, um, simply because I think Singles Day this year was a, it's always impressive. Look, I mean, you can, you, I'm pretty sure you can make up any number you want about Singles Day and people would believe it. So, you know, Alibaba sold 106 kajillion yen worth of stuff. Like, no, but I mean, 
It is. Uh, so Alibaba, just to put this in perspective before we get to the actual day, just really used to remember Alibaba, if they only operated on November 11th and only sold the $85.4 billion worth of GMV they sold on November 11th, Alibaba would be the 18th largest retailer in the world for 2021. For one one day of business would make them a top twenty global retailer. So, um, so, so yeah, it's it's an astonishing year. Um, I would so, but no, I think eleven eleven was a. Uh, I think this year, especially given the muted approach to it, that particularly the Alibaba took, I think it was a continuation of trends. I'm going to go with August twenty fifth if I had to pick a day. Um, and um, August twenty fifth is a day that I can see Shri stands out in your head by the, by the quizzical expression you're giving me. But uh, and that's the day that uh, that Walmart Connect announced its partnership with the Trade Desk. Um, and uh, when the world's largest selling entity joins with one of the world's most successful audience and media agencies to build a, you know, and with all due, and look, I, the work that teams like uh, Roundell and uh, Kroger Precision Marketing have done over the years is great. But when Walmart starts to say that we are going to become an integrated demand creation and conversion platform, that's sort of, um, you know, that that's, that, that, that's a pretty big moment. That's the, uh, that, that's the moment, that's the moment in Jurassic Park when the T-Rex shows up. So, uh, as opposed to the, uh, as opposed to the cute dinosaurs that we saw running around earlier. So, um, so, um, so I would, so I would say that, and I think that that is really more symbolic perhaps of the world we're going to in 2022 and beyond. So I'll, I'll pick that as, I'll pick that as a day. Why not? That's an excellent day. Good choice, Brian. That's what we were thinking too all along. I promise you. I, I knew I knew that was the one. I knew it was the one you had. I, I hope it was. I, I hope that my hours of preparation and research, i.e., I just googled it now, um, revealed that August that that was in fact August twenty fifth. If it was a different day, I apologize to Walmart for getting the day wrong. Brian, phenomenal to have you back on the CPG Guys podcast, where you belong, your family to us. So we love ending the year with a little fun and frivolity and maybe a little insight to boot. So a couple dashes of that aren't too bad. Hey, um, I want to talk to you uh, within the food and beverage space, particularly around perishable grocery. Has has it really emerged into its own in Omnichannel? And if so, is that being, what's driving it? Is it click and collect or no, it isn't? And what are the, what are the friction points that really still don't make perishable grocery truly omni-channel yet yeah i mean i think it's evolved into something sure um you know an evolution the great thing about evolution is it's a continuous process you just don't know it's continuous so you know um you know i i realize i realize looking at you fine gentlemen it's possible to think that the human the human race has reached its apex and can get no better than uh than uh, than what we've got represented here, but uh, you know, ten thousand years from now, people won't have little fingers anymore, and they'll wonder what, you know what we were doing. Um, but I think it it has clearly reached a plateau from an evolutionary point of view in a couple of key ways. One, it's obviously scaled, or um, and that's that's useful. Um, two, it's um, I think it's proven that it's uh, there are a variety of sustainable models that you can use, um, and three. I do think that the, and we talked about this last year, and I've talked about this till I'm blue in the face. And uh, I'm, this is one prediction I'm pretty sure I got right, which is um, I don't know anybody that doesn't work for Instacart that's been more bullish on Instacart than me. Um, and um, and I think Instacart has to some degree transformed the nature of perishable gross uh, of e-commerce grocery shopping in the U.S. specifically and perishable shopping, I think in particular. Um, so yeah, I. 
look, I, and I think that's where, and for years I've think that click and collect is a very logical way for the United States to do, to do e-commerce grocery. The, the gap always was for me is that there were clearly people that want to pay for home delivery. It's just a real problem for the retailer to figure out how to parse those people out and charge them for that versus not charging everybody else. And that's where you get to Walmart Plus and all sorts of membership programs. And, you know, but those are always kind of a little clunky in the end. It's like, you know, because you're providing two distinctly different value propositions to your universe. What Instacart did is they solved the problem, right? Because now it's not the retailer solving that problem. It's a different entity. And I can willingly pay Instacart a ridiculous amount of money to do what they do. Because every time I go on Instacart, they tell me I've saved 212 hours of shopping since I've been using them. 212 hours is a lot. Um, so I do think that for you're seeing a kind of a bifurcated model like you see with many things in the U.S. where where people can afford it and where the logistics permit it, home delivery is starting to make more sense from a grocery point of view. But I still do think for large swaths of budget-conscious, car-driven America that uh, that, click and, that click and collect is just a much better way for uh, e-commerce and e-grocery to work. I also think that you're starting to see now – sorry, it's a long answer, but um, – but what did you expect? Um, so um, the uh, the uh, I think the other thing to look at, of course, is um, where you've got a model like GoPuff, which is a really interesting way to solve not perishables. Obviously, they're not a you know no one's buying lettuce at three in the morning. But um, but the um, but the way in which GoPuff's done that, rather than trying to be a wholesaler and then somehow figure out how to monetize, blah, blah, blah. What they're saying, no, we're going to be a retailer. We're going to go straight to the brands who are going to pay us to help get access to their customers through a really unusual, really well-thought-out sampling program and some other things. So I do think you're starting to see economic models evolve that allow home delivery to make more sense. Um, but yes, I think for the great, for the bulk of the U.S., I think Click and Collect is going to be a, an incredibly logical way for Americans to do uh, e-commerce perishable grocery. Click and collect. It is, folks, also known as Bopis, has many other names for fresh, for fresh and for um, fast-moving grocery, for sure, Brian. So um, I want to go to uh, what I would arguably end up calling one of the major headwinds that actually happened in 2021, which is global supply chain disruption. I want to but then narrow that down to specifically what it did to e-commerce. Did it do anything to e-commerce? Did it move it forward, backward? And does this favor e-commerce in any way? What do you think? I thought about this question a lot. Um, and for anybody who thinks that all of this is spontaneous, it's not. There's hours of preparation that go into it. Um, but I did, no, no, I, when you emailed me the questions, I, I did think about this one. I'm not sure that e-commerce versus physical retail would be the most relevant classification I would use for things that are impacted. I think there are just other – I think there are attributes of businesses that got more waylaid by supply chain than others and I don't know that there's a tight correlation between their success in e-commerce and those other factors. The one thing I will say, and I think this is particularly true in consumables, is that simpler, safer, shorter supply chains won, right? So global, complicated, integrated, boat-driven, low-unit-cost, massive-scale supply chains mostly lost. Now, 
that got offset a little bit because big companies could start to bully their way through the transportation providers and get stuff a little bit better, not bully, um, yeah, but encourage transportation providers to serve them. So that balanced out a tiny bit. I would say that on balance, the nature of companies that use e-commerce well may perhaps correlate a little bit to companies that have shorter, smaller, safer, um, shorter, smaller, safer supply chains. So I would say that if you looked at the data, my guess is, is that the, that brands that specialize in e-commerce probably outperformed brands that don't in this global supply chain crisis. But I don't know that e-commerce is the reason for it. I think there's a, I think it's a correlation between brands that are good at e-commerce and brands that have a particular type of supply chain, uh, that, 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 that survived this better. The other thing I will say is that, you know, look, we've been talking about digital disruption for a decade, right? And, uh, you know, I've you guys have heard me say something like, look, if e-commerce in the United States disrupted your business, that's like standing on train tracks for three hours, watching a train coming straight at you, having it run you over and say, I got disrupted. It's like, no, you weren't disrupted. You were lazy um, and you just weren't moving. Um, you know, e-commerce in the U.S. pre-COVID was the most predictable commercial phenomenon that's ever happened. It was metronomic in its share name. Um, so I think, uh, you know, with all due respect to the great Clayton Christensen who made a fortune talking about disruption, um, I think God took a look at this and said, you want to see disruption? I'll show you disruption. <laughs> that, that was just, that was just lazy change management. This is disruption. So, um, you know, the disrupted basics is one of the themes that we'll come back to when we talk about the predictions for 2022, because that's a, that's a very different type of disruption than the quote digital disruption we were going through before. When you describe the person standing in front of the train, I can't help but think of the security guard in Austin Powers as the steamroller slowly <laughs> moved. And he <laughs> Brian knows where I'm going with this. Well, All right. My other favorite one is a fish but, called Wanda when, uh, you know, when Kevin Clark goes, look, oh, yes. this could be coming to kill me. <laughs> He's stuck in the All right. But, before we go to predictions, I'm gonna we're gonna open up the floor to you, Brian, and let you try and give us a quick recap of of 2021. And please understand that your pithy response is going to be judged compared to what you said last year in describing Stu Leonard's as being HEB's central market dropping acid. That's the kind of quality of commentary. That's really the, that's really the, that's really the salience of the insight because you can really, I mean you can you can like allocate capital budgets on that type of insight yeah I mean that's a, that's a, that's board that's board level stuff um, so all right well with that with that as my uh, with that as my benchmark I uh, I will uh, I will endeavor I will endeavor to match it um, now I think look I mean if you look at this year um, I would say the the attributes of this year were um, <clears throat> a sort of a, a sort of predictable unpredictability. Um, and, um, I think the, I think that by and large, one of the, one of the things that I think big companies have discovered in particular in 2021 is that they're quote better at managing complexity than they thought. And, um, and every business I've ever talked to on the client side, they always said, Oh, we're terrible at managing complexity. I'm like, no, you're not. You guys run remarkably complicated businesses. What you're terrible at managing is variance. That's uh which is different, right? You can manage all the complexity in the world as long as you know it's coming. Um, and I think this year, most companies got used to the idea that variance was going to be coming more regularly and built a way of working that if not 
you know, dealt with it perfectly, um, at least was able to cope with that. And I think that adaptation process was really important um, because I think if you can keep attributes of that into a world that will eventually get back to something that is a little bit more modelable and predictable, you're going to be able to capitalize on opportunities that you weren't able to before. Um, but yeah, I think the, you know, one of the ways that, you know, we kind of look at this is this idea of the disrupted basics on the supply side and the demand side. And uh, there's a whole separate podcast we could do about the, the epic failure of imagination that has gone into the global supply chain um, and, um, and the eminently predictable, if not in nature, if not in specifics, but in nature problems that come from a supply chain dedicated to absolute lowest unit cost, massive centralized manufacturing, no safety stock or margin of error, and just in time distribution on things like boats. Um, so none of that, if you sit back and look at it, really makes any sense. And, um, and I do think that one of the things that you're going to find in 2022 and 2023, I think are companies really relooking at what their, what their supply chain is and what it's supposed to do. So we're getting into predictions now, but that would be, I think the, 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 the reckoning for the type of supply chain management we were doing for a while, it's basically that, that supply chain was a bubble. It was an investment bubble, you know, there was a perceived superiority of return without risk, which is a characteristic of an investment bubble. That's what that's what highly complex zero margin of error global sourcing was. It's a you know it's the it's it's pets.com. Um, so I think I think in a rational portfolio world, you know that those increased returns come with increased risks, and you need to plan accordingly to manage that. So I think that's been a huge learning for people this year. I think on the demand side, I think right now. We're in the middle of just the weirdest moment in history from a marketing and sales point of view, which is the longest human experiment possible in people adapting without habit. And that's really interesting um, because no one's really got habits right now that they can know and reliably say they're going to be doing a year from now. And that creates some convolution in terms of demand planning and assortment planning and, you know, really thinking about how you use your, you know, how you market and sell. But the one thing it does do is, holy moly, is this an opportunity? Like, you know, this is, this is a generational opportunity to change behavior. And, you know, marketer, you're, you, if you're a 45-year-old marketer, you may never have another chance like this for the rest of your working life to reposition your brand in the marketplace and to reposition consumer attitudes around it and to change consumer behaviors to embrace it. And I think when you combine that with the supply chain disruption, it gives you a really unique opportunity to think about what your brand means, what it stands for, what it's doing, how it works, and then how you promote and sell that brand in a more complicated ecosystem. But I think that disrupted basics piece is really huge. Um, I think the other piece is, is that I think, um, I think, I think e-commerce finally got to the people that are all our bosses as a thing that's going to stick, right? And um, and I think the narrative around COVID caused that. The data around COVID wouldn't suggest that necessarily. But as as we all know, senior moving senior management is as much about narrative as it is about as it is about facts. Because in the end, the narrative is what they're selling to investors. So so the um, the narrative moved to a point where. C-suite executives could start to embrace e-commerce as and look like responsible executives 
rather than people that were, you know, trying to future-proof a company or taking a flyer on something. Now I think it's part of the portfolio of responsible executive management. And that's a, that's a really big shift. And I think post-COVID, that's going to be, that's going to have a dramatic impact, um, um, Shri, on folks with jobs like yours, um, where you're going to be having very different conversations up the ladder inside of mostly the big branded companies to do that. I think the last thing is, is that um, I, I think some of these, I think some of these, there hasn't been a new wave of small brands necessarily because the world's been so weird. Um, you know, everybody's everybody's entrepreneurial energy went into procuring PPE for a year. So no, nobody was like going out and building the next really cool brand or whatever it is. So I think there's an interesting moment right now where it's like, uh, you know, it's like the Russian population after World War II where you had five years where you just didn't have as many people. You know, the, so I think you're going to have an interesting moment right now between medium-sized brands and, and really small ones where there might be a bit of a gap. So I think there's an interesting opportunity right now for big brands to try to think about innovations that look like small brands to fill some of that gap. So that's some of the, that's some of the thinking around the year in review, I think, but uh, I could keep going for hours, but you really don't want me to do that. I knew when we asked Brian to sum up the year for us, we'll get the real deal and the real scoop. So thank you for pointing out a lot of those. Just a reminder for our audience that we are speaking to Brian Gildenberg, the SVP of Commerce for the Omnicom Commerce Group. And now I'm going to jump into my favorite topic, which I do believe shaped up in 2021 as something really solid and actually is part of your job scope every day, and that is retail media. Retail media obviously has become a household name now in CPG and at retailers go forward. What's your advice for brands addressing this growing need from retail? Um. Wow. Yeah, that's a... To get to a pithy answer, um, I would say the biggest piece of work that needs to happen is, as always, more simple and granular than it is strategic and visionary, which is you've just literally got to make sure that people that know how to buy media have some idea of how a retailer works and that people that know how a retailer works have some idea how to buy media. Like... And just have some idea of what the vocabulary is and things like that. Like I was talking to a, a C-level executive, a big CPG company about this about a month and a half ago. And uh, I made her, I think I made, I made her a bet, which is that I would bet you that if you took a 29-year-old media planner and a 29-year-old account manager for your company um, and put them in a bar talking to each other, let's see how long they could talk to each other without realizing they work for the same company. My guess is it's probably half an hour. So, and if you think about it, somebody who buys media for a living has a completely different experience of a company than somebody who's working in Arkansas on the Walmart team. They don't know any of the same people. They don't have any of the same definition of success. They don't use any of the same vocabulary to describe their job. They have no shared assumptions at all. They, and as a result, that breakdown in communication just makes this whole thing really garbled. My hypothesis is once those two people understood each other, they finally have a fair amount in common. You know, media pl media planners aren't marketers. I mean, they are, but they're, they don't think like marketers. And in the classic sort of, you know, marketers are cats, salespeople are dogs, you know, dogs and cats don't like each other kind of thing. That's not really the way media planners work. Media planners approach their jobs more like salespeople. They are, they are fairly left brained. They're very spreadsheet driven. They're very short term incentives driven. They're very tactical. They're very commercial. And, uh, and in that way, they have the same tension with brand marketers often that salespeople do. 
And um, so I think there's an alignment of perspective on how the world works between media planning and sales. It's just a complete misalignment in vocabulary and success definition. Um, so I think that's that's a big one. I think the second one is, is you've got to make sure, particularly for the people here that are in the e-commerce sales world, that the people that are responsible for buying and planning media realize how how big these ecosystems are to the P&L of the business because they're not big players in media yet. So, you know, if you're a media planner, even, you know, the great efforts that Walmart and Roundell and Kroger Precision Marketing are really kind of leading the pack in that space have made, they're great, but they don't look anything like the types of relationship that you have from a media point of view, even with Amazon, who a media planner would tell you is one of the worst of the DSPs they deal with is Amazon, right? You know, they want to go back to the trade desk or DV360 from Google and just do the things they know how to do. So, um, so, and as a result, their attitude towards what they're trying to do in that space can sometimes get a little weird. At the same time, the third big piece is in understand, is just in making sure that we're all aligned around how, you know, how we're going to think about who pays for it and who owns it. Um, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of strategic questions to get to, but in some ways, weirdly, the strategic questions are easier if you get all this stuff sorted out because all you're doing is, you know, whether you have a conversion funnel or a loop or a, whatever your model is, all you're doing is integrating it, right? So that conceptually, it's not hard. The hard part are all the mechanical issues that come up. And the biggest mechanical issue most companies have is that there's so many stakeholders involved in this process and that either don't want to pay for it, like Instacart, which is the classic one, or do want to pay for it, like <laughs> like paid search on Amazon. Like everybody wants to own that because it works. And um, so you've got, it's the only thing I've ever seen. We've got six different budgets are all trying to control paid search on Amazon because it's got the best ROAS of anything you can spend money on. So, um, so really understanding what you're trying to do, who knows how to do that, and then how do you connect the dots that you have working on it? I also think that you've got a very fragmented ecosystem of businesses that are involved in that. Um, you know, not to be self-reflective here, but on the agency side, you've got agencies like ours, you've got your media agencies, you've got specialty e-commerce agencies, you've got specialty e-commerce media agencies, and everybody's kind of jostling to try to figure out what this is going to look like. But a lot of this really in the end gets down to some pretty mechanical stuff around goal alignment, budget and uh, budget alignment, and just really simple vocabulary understanding. Get that stuff right first. Worry, and I would almost worry about the strategy a little bit later. But just make sure that if you had a strategy that made sense, that it would have any hope at all of getting executed. Which right now, for most companies, they don't. They they'll have a great vision on what to do, but no ability to execute it because all of the things that make a that make a company work are pretty garbled. If I were a small company, I would take advantage of this window of opportunity and try to lean in as much as possible. The problem for small companies is is that they're struggling with an effectiveness perspective. Um, in terms of just not really knowing how to amplify their message in retail media to a place where they get a better return on it than on other things. And uh, and that's that'll be a bit of a struggle as well. The one thing, Brian, the offshoot question that pops out of that is for retail media is, you know, you spoke of ROAS, the industry largely built media and marketing mix on attribution and halo. Is that a thing of the past? Because now retail media is a direct full funnel activation. No, I don't think so. I think um, I think the retailers will tell you that they're capable of full funnel attribution because it's 
generally speaking, in their best interest to do so. It's like Google Google was a huge fan of last click attribution for years. Why? Because Google was always the last click. So uh, I, I think there's a, I wouldn't call it marking your own homework, but it's really coming up with your own grading system. Um, so I, I do think that there's going to continue to be energy around understanding where the effectiveness of media that's not aimed at a, spe- a, sp- at a specific commercial ecosystem and the impact that that media has on media that takes place within a specific commercial ecosystem and not just simply over-assuming that the things that are closer to the conversion are the only things that matter. Um, but I do think that's going to take some, that'll take clarity of thinking. And I think, you know, I'm sure you know this better than I do, but I think a lot of big companies are in silos actually really clear about that. What they're not good at is bringing is bringing those silos together to have an organized conversation about how the parts work together. Um, and I think a lot of that's because there's just a lot of differences at a structural level in mindset, in rewards. And at some basic level, it's like a lot of what, a lot of what constitutes an effective media campaign, you know, doesn't work for resources that are deployed at a customer level or at a retailer level. Like, you know, anything that's not aimed at selling something in that retailer specific ecosystem is not going to get the Walmart team leader's attention. But a lot of media measures are not that. They're certainly not selling things at Walmart. They don't care. But but sometimes they're not even about selling things. It's, you know, it's just about... You know, it's about reach or it's about a specific activity in the purchase funnel that you're trying to get people to do. Or, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to create brand love or all the other things that media, media planners and marketers try to do. And, um, so yeah, so I think that full funnel attribution is fine or that full funnel visibility is fine. But I still think that until, I mean, the Kroger's recently as like a month ago finally got to a point where you could start to take some of the, yeah, some of the elements of their own data ecosystem and organize them so that you're not doing things like duplicating reach and doing all sorts of goofy stuff. Um, and I, I still think there's a there's a lot of work to do to pull together a holistic view of the market. Um, that's still that's still real work to do for a while. And whether that's attribution or even just more coherent planning or um, planning so that you're not duplicating reach and frequency across multiple platforms to the same consumer. Um, I, th- I think there's still, there, there's still, we're, we're in the early, the early innings there. I think. Let's explore where the last mile is going, Brian, as we start thinking about 2022, 2021, we had a phenomenal explosion in different mechanisms. I'm pretty sure that and somewhat fearful of the fact that, I'm going to have drones flying around my head like mosquitoes in the summer in Minneapolis. So let's hope that's not happening. But in any event, I I, I want to understand where you see the last mile going. Is it going to consolidate around a particular mechanism? And is that pickup? Is it pickup at the store? Is it curbside? Is it a depot? What is What do you see being uh, the the future for the last mile in 2022? Well, I think uh, consolidates a good word, right? Because the notion that 17 different companies are going to be running around traipsing the same stretch of road between, you know, you know, a suburban center with a restaurant, a Walmart, a grocery store and whatever, and your house is, that's just not clear economic thinking. That's not going to happen. Um, so, um, you know, there's there's going to be advantages in simplifying that. And, you know, 
<laughs> sure, sure. We're gonna we're gonna go back to like thirty five years, you know, whatever, however many years ago you were riding a truck at Pepsi, and this is all just this is all just basic route density, right? Um, so, um, yeah, the economics of route density are unrelenting. So, um, so you are gonna see a consolidation in last mile provision, certainly, especially for anything that has anything to do with delivery. Um, and um, and you know that's gonna be the classic example of the the best economic model, the best consumer experience, and the best operator is going to win. And they'll just consolidate everybody else. And you're probably going to end up with somebody, and whether that is Instacart or Uber or somebody, is going to end up being the back end of a lot of this stuff. And they're going to source that capability to other providers that want to put a, a different user interface on top of it. Um, you know, as, as I said before, and then I think when you consolidate it, you increase the number of markets for which it could be a viable solution for a segment of the population. So um, just basically based on the underlying economics. The other thing I think that's gotten interesting, and this is where Instacart and GoPuff are interesting, is that as those out as those providers become successful or not at becoming legitimate demand creation and conversion platforms for brands, that's where you start to offset the economics of whatever it is that you're doing. So there, but, but that's still, that's still early days and all to play for and all the great Ted Lasso cliches. Right. So, uh, so, um, you know, there's, I think it's uncertain right now how effective that will be um, in terms of exactly how successful different models can be at getting, basically at getting somebody to pay for them. Um, and some, you know, there'll be one, overriding model that probably lets a segment of consumers that want to pay for it, pay for it. You know, maybe it'll be Amazon and something else probably to call it. And then there'll be a, there'll be some other specific operations that find ways to monetize high margin purchase occasions, um, like being hungry at two in the morning, like GoPuff or um, unusual value chains like Drizzly and alcohol. So I think you'll see this emerge kind of kind of the way retail emerged, actually. You'll have a couple of mass players that dominate uh, the volume in the center and then niche players that fulfill specific needs on the delivery side. But yeah, I still, I still think that in the car-driven parts of America, you're still going to have an over... There's an overwhelming economic advantage to click and collect that is going to be, I think, is just a little difficult to overcome. And that economic advantage isn't just that the consumer is driving to the grocery store. It just allows you to not have to solve the temperature controlled issue at just at it, you know, in a distributed way, which is expensive. That's the that's the really expensive part of grocery delivery is, you know, how do you how do you drop ice cream? How do you drop ice cream off um, in, in the most predictable way possible? Now, Instacart solved that problem by narrowing the delivery windows and. And um, but again, that doesn't work for everybody. So I was going to charter a drone and send it to Wallingford, Connecticut, and put some bluebell ice cream on it to see what happens. But you know, I'm going to wait for another day at this stage, Brian, based on what you said. Well, one of my buddies lives in Wallingford, so uh, so you can uh, you can pick it up for it if you want. But um, but um, but yeah, I think uh, look, the drone thing is, um, and I, now it. You know, I'm old, so I can't hide it sometimes. And, uh, you know, I, tr I try to, I try to, I try to get into our crypto conversations at work and then I just eventually tap out. But, um, I think one of the areas in which I will be old is to suggest that the idea that drone delivery is ever going to exist at scale, um, in a place where if it can carry something heavy enough to matter, it can carry a weapon, uh, just makes no sense at all. So, um, so there's just absolutely no possible way that, that, <laughs> that, that, 
you know, domestic security is going to allow drone delivery to become a thing, I don't think. And now I may, in 10 years from now, I may prove to be completely wrong about that, but that just, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. Um, there's so much regulation that has to take place in that. Like even self-driving cars, I mean, this is all great. And, you know, the, the self-driving trucks and they're way safer than human drivers and everybody gets that. The first time one of these trucks runs over somebody, you're going to have four million pages of utterly pointless regulation that are going to disrupt that industry 16 ways from Sunday. So I think you just want to be a little cautious about some of this, just knowing how knowing people's innate fear of personless technology and the real practical issues involved in it. I think uh, I would probably I would be a I would be a I would bet the left side of the bell curve on personless distribution, particularly personless distribution that could injure or maim someone. So, Peter, your holiday gift this year is a six-inch long self-driving automated car that will say Matchbox on it. So I think we're going to be okay. I'm looking forward to keeping all of those down-on-their-luck litigation attorneys employed for years to come, Shrey. And it'll be sent to you via carrier, a common carrier via delivery van. So it's going to make you happy. What happened to Pigeon? Send it to me via Pigeon. There we go. A little note tagged. There, there we, we go. go. I'm thinking owls might be better. But Brian, I have to ask you this question because we just actually, prior to talk, chatting with you a few weeks ago, we had a um, D2C startup that actually has scaled very fast called the Dude Wipes. So I want I want to get a strong opinion from you, D to C, competitor or pretender. It's funny I don't I, I don't know that that's the continuum I would use because um, I think it's I don't think it's a clearly it's not a pretender. I mean there's there are there are businesses that grow up D to C and reach a, a certain scale and uh, and reach a certain certain mind share in the category um, and you know change the narrative of the category, stretch the definition, change the Overton window of the possible from an innovation point of view. That's all, that's all really useful stuff. Um, and, um, and they're smart brands and they get acquired by big companies and big companies destroy them. Um, so, um, so that's, that's cool. That'll, that'll keep happening. Um, I think the, um, I think the, the question about D to C for me is there are two ways in which it is very clearly a pretender. Um, number one is, any presentation that starts with, we're going to have a D2C platform because we need to gather first party data on our consumer. It's like, great. <laughs> That's excellent. So here's the thing. Don't start there. You know, don't start with the outcome, right? That's like, I don't even know what that's like. Start with, we're going to have a D2C proposition because it's really cool and our consumers will like it. And as a result, we will gather first-party data on our consumer. But the number of just lazy consulting projects that people are trying to implement because, you know, some, some digital Rati consultant has been able to sit down and scare people into saying that with the degradation of cookies and IDPA and all sorts of other goofy acronyms, you're not going to have any first-party data anymore, so you have to go get some. That may, that may be true. Um, it may not be, but it may be true. But going to get it's not the way to do it it's like you know that's like saying you know that's that's like that's like being you know as uh my old boss my old boss martin Sorrell used to say goes that's like trying to sell somebody a condo at a cocktail party it's like you know no, just talk to them first then sell them the condo um so um so um so yeah that's um so i think that's one area in which it's very clearly a pretender i think secondarily the fuzzy-headed notion that for brands of scale that you're going to be able to get around retailers and build anything that's, you know, of significant size 
Um, that's purely D 2 C that doesn't go through some sort of digital or physical retail presence, even if it's Amazon's, even if it's Amazon's vendor central network or, um, or seller central, sorry, kind of backwards. Um, I think that's kind of silly. Um, and I think the, and I do think people are beginning to realize that the era of URL driven D 2 C is probably coming to an end and that your D 2 C presence has got to be, has got to be your Instagram, your brand's Instagram feed, um, your brand's presence on platforms where people already are. And then the line between D 2 C and commerce enabled marketing gets really, really blurry. So, um, so, but I think that would be, and that's one of my predictions, by the way, for the, the coming year is that, that, that blurring is going to be pretty significant. Um, the blurring between content and commerce is this, that will be, that, that will be one of the major shifts of the next year or two. And it's an outcome of a number of things, but, uh, but yeah, so I think, I think what we used to call D to C, and I think this is increasingly becoming true as headless D to C becomes more important and you're able to handle the design part and the back end part in two separate decision processes. I think you're going to get yourself to a point where the delineation between D to C and really cool creative that's got a commerce back end to it that sells something that that divide's going to be relatively insignificant. So. Now, if I don't have D to C, where else could I possibly find first-party data. Unrelated, did you see this week's press release that Fetch Rewards is now tracking over $100 billion in gross merchandise value with PII identifiable and associated at the product level? That's just too... Sorry for the non-sequitur. Sorry for the non-sequitur people. No, 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 that was was good. And, And I think at least this year in my predictions... I just simply forgot to mention that your company does this as opposed to promoting your competitor, which I think I did last year. Um, so uh, forgetting that you'd gone to work at Fetch. So, um, so, um, so we're, there's real improvement here, I think, on, uh, you know, on, uh, you know we, we, we're seeking progress, not perfection here. So, um, so. All right. So let's round this out, uh, Mr. G. I'm going to open up the floor again and let you mention any other particularly intriguing predictions for 2022 that you think our audience should be thinking about? Yeah, sure. There's a, there are a few, as I said, I think one, one is I do think we are getting to a place where you're going to see more and yeah, I would, I would have said that yesterday's D to C is tomorrow's commerce enabled content. And, um, and commerce enabled content is going to become a much bigger deal. And, um, you know, you've got those companies like hyphen and basketful that are really good at, you know, and even things like, you know, wist.com and stuff like that that are getting really good at commerce enabling, you know, sort of pre existing content. And that was all pretty wooden and pretty mechanical. But what you're starting to see now are the businesses that have been able to tap into the retailer's APIs so that they know store level inventory so that you can convert not on the retailer's website with two day delivery, but convert in the moment at a store that's near you. That shift is enormous um, in terms of what you're able to do, particularly in consumables from a content enabled commerce perspective. So I think that's one. I think number two is that I think people are going to realize that the idea of the endless shelf needs to change um, because the endless shelf as a, as the endless shelf in terms of what you sell 
was always really kind of stupid, to be honest. Um, it didn't make any sense. Um, an endless shelf creates no value for anybody. You know, there's a there's a reason. How, how do you, Brian? How do you reconcile the endless shelf with stats from companies like Profitero that say eighty percent of people never go out beyond page one of search results? I mean, is not really the is not the crux of the issue? Well, that's. A, I mean, we anybody that knows anything has known that. Shopping behavior in e-commerce is way more like so how somebody shops at Aldi or Costco than how they shop at an endless shelf because the number of items they're looking at is usually the field of vision that you have at Aldi or Costco, right? So, um, so, and that's, it's a limited assortment environment, basically, if you're choosing between products. Um, if you're, the endless part works, but you've got to be findable, right? Otherwise, it's the uh, warehouse the Ark of the Covenants is in, as I've said a million times. But it's just, I mean... If the endless shelf had value, stores would just be piles of stuff, right? Um, most of them aren't. Um, and, um, you know, curation matters. Um, so I think that's, I think that's one, I think, I think the return of thoughtful curation as a, as a thing is a big piece of this. But I think the endless shelf is more interesting, not in terms of what's on it, but other variables, not what, but where and when. That's what people are going to realize the endless shelf actually means, is that you can put a shelf anywhere. And I think what people are going to start to realize is that commerce-enabled content is going to get you to a world where somebody is going to say, well, apart from me, um, it's going to say something like that. Basically, what commerce-enabled content turns the world into is a perpetual potential end cap. So you can put an end cap anywhere. So, um, and that's, that's really interesting. And now you're about a step away from minority report where you've got, you know, you've got sort of, in, you know, integrated selling all over the place. Um, so I, th I think that's too, um, I think there's going to be an enormous, uh, the third is, I, this is more of a hope than a prediction, but I'm going to hope, I think there's going to be a real reckoning on supply chain, um, um, in terms of where manufacturing is done. Um, and I think people are going to realize that longer term, having all your eggs in a basket called China um, is an interesting idea, given the direction that China seems to be heading in. Um, and having all of your eggs in a basket called on the other side of the Pacific Ocean creates problems. The Pacific Ocean is not getting smaller um, or less choppy or less wavy. Um, so that's an issue. So I think I think you're going to see a real um McKinsey did a really good study on the apparel industry where they talked about two terms that I think you're going to hear a lot from a, um, from a sourcing point of view in 2022, one of which is nearshoring, which is manufacturing way closer to where you operate and way easier to transport stuff from point to point. And the other one is reshoring, which is bringing manufacturing back to the market you're operating in. And um, I, I do think that advancements in um, manufacturing automation are going to create a are going to create an opportunity to start to narrow the cost gap, um, and then I think the other big piece of this is going to be that you are going to see brands capitalize, I think particularly in the U.S. on the unique confluence of disrupted habits, disrupted habits, and huge amounts of disposable income to start to really weave in a achievable sustainability premium 
for, for brands and products that can fundamentally change the way the consumers think about what they're consuming. This is, as I said, you've got people whose habits are disrupted, who have way more money than they used to, um, and aren't spending that money on things the way that they used to, because they haven't resumed their travel, their entertainment, and all their other habits. You've got a really unique window of time here to capture people that are tr still treating themselves a little bit more at home than they used to, and to give them something meaningful that might be made differently than it used to be with a, maybe a little bit more expensive, but that can niche into that. And I think you're going to see more and more companies really try to figure that out. And I do think that you're going to see more, more especially huge companies continue to walk the walk on, on sustainability and corporate social responsibility. Like that has become, remember all the controversy like two years ago or three years ago about, you know, I mean, the Colin Kaepernick Nike ads and all that stuff. And I just think, I think the corporate world kind of ended that debate for itself um, and just decided that we are, we are, you know, we're going to worry less about alienating people um, and worry more about inclusion because I think in the end, they just looked at the math um, and that the U.S. is a market in which it is easier to alienate people by by catering to one audience than it is by catering to a diverse one. It's just the, the math on that is becoming unrelenting um, and will only continue to get more unrelenting over time. So um, I, I think that's a big piece. The, la the, the last two are, and these are probably a little longer term, um, one, a prediction that um, I'll continue to make until I stop making predictions, which is that I do think retail, as we know it, is going to get woven into broader consumer propositions over time. And um, and broader consumer propositions over time are going to start to integrate into more of a retailer thing. I still think, and I might be a year or two off on this, but I still think that Instagram has a potential to be one of the 10 largest apparel retailers in the world by the late 2020s, call it. Because um, it's just a way better way to sell apparel than just about anything else. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, and I think that there will be interesting mergers between digital assets and legacy physical retailers that have .com presences. And, um, you know, it wouldn't surprise me to see that rule get more complicated. And then the other one, which is a continued evolution, which moves at the pace of this particular industry, which is slow, but will continue to, is the, uh, is the continued merging between um, retail and healthcare. And that's not just drugstores. But if you ever listen to Colleen Lindholtz at Kroger talk about the thinking they're putting into the role that they can play um, from a food point of view, in terms of really helping people lead healthier lives, get to better outcomes, lower costs in the in the healthcare supply chain, that once the U.S. sort of recovers from the sort of weirdly distributed wreckage to the healthcare system that COVID has wrought upon it, and starts to resort itself out a little bit, I think there's going to be a completely unique opportunity for food companies in particular to really think about the role that they play in people's health um, and really think about the way in which, you know, we can, we can all contribute to making the, the U S specifically a healthier place. Cause this is really a, this is more of a U.S. centric phenomenon than just about anywhere else in the world. So. Wow. I think my biggest learning today, Peter, is that the Pacific ocean is not getting any bigger. What about you? I actually think that's, I actually think the Pacific ocean is getting bigger because the polar ice caps are melting, but uh, don't, uh, don't, don't quote me on that. So. 
I need to figure out what I'm going to do with my cupboard full of fudge-dipped Oreos. You can eat them. Uh, just eat That's a supply oh, no, chain right. problem. Inventory, man. Yeah, that's, a, oh, that's, a, that's working capital. That's uh, a supply. You're telling me I need to consume or I need to move on. I don't know. But in any event, three, this, what a, what a great way to finish out 2021. I know when I asked Brian to join us and be a guest today, we'll get the real scoop and that's what we ended up getting. So let me remind our audience that all our content can be simply found by going to a browser and typing cpgguys.com and join this growing family and this growing audience on LinkedIn by simply going to a browser, typing linkedin.com. In the search bar, type cpgguys and hit the blue plus follow button. And Peter and I would love for you to leave us a rating and perhaps a review because that's how you can get to shape the show and tell us who you like, you don't like, what conversations you'd like to have. Simply do that by going to ratethispodcast.com slash cpgguys. Mr. Gildenberg, as always, thank you, sir. Oh, gentlemen, thank you very much and have a wonderful holiday season and the uh, the best of possible New Year's. And uh, and again, congratulations to you guys on uh, on the platform. It's uh, It's really something. Thank you, Brian. Peter, pleasure doing this week over with you. What a whopping 2021 we had, and it makes 2022 look so far behind in the rear view mirror, man. Shreya, I just want to take a moment and reflect on 2021. Both personally and professionally, it was an epic year for me. I made a transition uh, when I moonlight joining Fetch Rewards, which is just on a meteoric rise. And then at the same time, you and I have cultivated this community of very passionate people that are interested in understanding the transformation that's going on. They reach out to us. They stop and talk to us. Uh, We have people wanting to come on the podcast all the time. And people relay to us how it is helping them understand all of this confusion and transformation. And none of that would be possible without you uh, with me on this journey, Sheree. So I want to just stop and say thank you to you. Uh, you are my brother. You're my partner. Uh, you are my ride or die. I say that all the time, but I really mean that. And I am so incredibly grateful for the adventures that we've gone on together this year, whether it be the episodes we record, the trips we go on, just the the creative uh, activities that we think about how we can make this more fun, make this more engaging, get more people involved. I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful for your partnership on this journey, Sri. And I know that 2022 is going to make 2021 look even small in comparison. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And now, coming soon to a movie theater near you, The Adventures of the CPG Guys. Wait, maybe it's a comic book series. But, Peter, the feelings are absolutely mutual. It's been a pleasure. I'm glad we talked that uh, that sunny day. I can't remember. Sunny day, rainy day and from New York City when I called you. And we thought this was a good idea to start back in May of 2020. It's been a long year and seven months. We've had over 150 guest episodes. Call it what you may. And I want to close out by wishing our audience a very happy new year and best wishes for 2022. We have a feature podcast day one of the year, as always, January 1st. Look out for it. Until then, have a very happy new year, folks, and see you soon on that episode of the CPG, guys. 
The content in this podcast episode is provided for general informational purposes only. By listening to our episode, you understand that no information contained in this episode should be construed as advice from CPG Guys LLC or the individual author, hosts, or guests, nor is it intended to be a substitute for research on any subject matter. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by CPG Guys LLC. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. The views expressed by CPG Guys LLC do not represent the views of their employers or the entity they represent. CPG Guys LLC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, or inability to use this podcast or the information we present in this podcast.